Today's message, Shaken in God's Sieve to be Restored. For section, Do You Know Who I Am? Today we complete our series on the book of Amos. In previous weeks, we've seen how this shepherd, sycamore, fig tree, tending, working class guy from the southern kingdom of Judah was called by God to travel north and warn Samaria's elite that the northern kingdom would be destroyed unless they made big changes. That destruction happened about 30 years later when the Assyrians overthrew Israel in 722 BC. They rebuked him for bothering to come and warn them. And basically they told Amos to get out of here, go back home, back to the farm where he belonged. They were too proud and arrogant to heed God's warning. This happened at a time of great national prosperity when Jeroboam II had extended the country's borders to its furthest ever extent and business was booming. Who needs a prophet of doom at a time like that? Pride makes people want to put themselves first, makes them feel they can throw their weight around, that they deserve priority over other regular people. A heavily booked commercial flight out of Denver was canceled and a single agent was rebooking a long line of inconvenienced travelers. Suddenly, an angry passenger pushed his way to the front and slapped his ticket down on the counter. I have to be on this flight and it has to be first class, he insisted. I'm sorry, sir, the agent replied. I'll be happy to help you, but I have to take care of these folks first. The passenger was unimpressed. Do you have any idea who I am? He demanded in a voice loud enough for the passengers behind him to hear. Without hesitating, the gate agent smiled and picked up her public address microphone. May I have your attention, please? She broadcast throughout the terminal. We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. If anyone can help him find his identity, please come to the gate. As the man retreated, the people in the terminal burst into applause. The people of the northern kingdom had that same, do you know who I am, arrogant attitude. Probably because they didn't know who God was. Next section, check on pride. God is bigger than we thought. There was a popular book some years back by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. The Israelites would have benefited from reading it. Amos, at several points, seeks to explode their diminished view of God. They had made him small enough to safely be ignored. When we get a better appreciation of how how great God is, it helps protect us from the downfall of pride, becoming overconfident in our own high estimation of ourselves. These short descriptions of Amos' great God pop into the text almost parenthetically, as if they're sidebars or interruptions in the general flow. Look, for example, at Amos 9, 5 to 6. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. 
the Lord, the Lord Almighty, Adonai, Yahweh, the divine titles pile upon each other, God of hosts or God of heavenly armies. The earth melts at his touch. He can make the land rise and fall as in devastating earthquakes. We understand there was an earthquake around this period in Israel. He spans the vertical dimension. His palace is in the heavens, but its base or foundation is on the earth. He designed and set the natural laws in place that govern the water cycle, wherein the waters of the seas are drawn up to the clouds and poured out on the land, providing fertility to crops and saving people and animals from dying of thirst. Sometimes that's poured out, that water is poured out in snow. I had to go over to Dungannon yesterday to get some feed for the animals because we're going to be away this week. And uh, boy, there were whiteouts and there were drifts and it was not good to be out. So, uh, oh, the Blythe clergy think they're going to go walk on Saturday, huh? Well, change of plans. Yeah. Man plans, God laughs, as the proverb goes. Yahweh is his name. The God who brings things into being is in charge of all that happens. Does this great almighty God factor into our daily planning? Do we orient our lives around the fact we will stand before him one day and give an account? Or do we just ignore him and go our own way to our peril? Revelation 20, 11. And I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. John, who wrote Revelation, also had a big picture of God. There were a couple of instances earlier in the book when Amos inserted some asides about this great God he served. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. 4.13. He who forms the mountains creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. And 5, 8 to 9, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. This cosmically great God who forms our topography, fashions the distant stars, and is quite at home hiking earth's highest spots. This same God nevertheless reveals his thoughts to us. He makes his ways intelligible for us that we may understand and get our lives in line with his purposes. Pride can trip us up because it's hard for the proud person to admit any shortcomings. In Charles Colson's book, Born Again, which details his experiences related to Watergate, Colson shares one of President Nixon's problems. He could never admit he was wrong in anything. 
In fact, Colson says, even when Nixon obviously had a cold, nose running, face red, sneezing, all the symptoms, he would never admit it. Next section, check on presumption. God will pursue his opponents minutely. Not only does Amos serve a big God, this immense deity that fills the universe to its greatest extent also knows every little nook and cranny. There is no escaping him, no hiding from his accountability. Chapter 9 begins with a startling vision of God's impending judgment. He's ready to smash the worship space at Bethel on those who are sacrificing to idols. 9 verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. As if that picture of calamity isn't startling enough, the passage goes on to describe how there's no hiding anywhere from this all-knowing God. Verses 2 to 4. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good can't escape his pursuit anywhere. Not in the grave or the heavens, not in the caves and forests of the Carmel mountain range that rose 1,800 feet above the Mediterranean. Even if there were a mythological sea serpent which in legend opposed the creator, God has control even of it and could direct it to carry out his sentence. See that in the story of Jonah. Oh, great fish over in sector 39. We've got a prof to pick up over in sector 42. Right, we're on it, boss. Go pick up Jonah. We see the intensity of God's being as well as his immensity. The God of the furthest stars, the Pleiades and Orion, is also the God of the smallest molecule and atom, the subatomic forces. Amos' God is not only big, he is pervasive. Much better to have him fix his eyes upon you for good, not for evil. Jesus was getting at something similar about how God knows us down to the most intimate detail and we're accountable to him in Matthew 10, 28 to 30. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God's knowledge of the universe he created is pervasive. That acts as a check on our presumption. We can't assume we will escape his scrutiny. Next section Check on privilege. God cares about others, too. People who are proud may also be susceptible to prejudice, considering themselves superior to others. The humble person doesn't count themselves better than others, but is ready to serve them, build them up, help them however they can. 
when we have a proper estimation of who we are in light of God's grace. It helps us have a posture that's ready to bless our neighbor instead of look down our nose at them. As Paul admonished in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Hmm. Some people seem to think they automatically rate privilege and perks. Ivor Spencer manages a butler placement service. He teaches young butlers to be how to iron a newspaper and serve salmon and all the other details of the profession. He has placed butlers with some of the richest and most powerful people in the world. He tells a story of when Leona Helmsley, who's an American businesswoman whose flamboyant personality and reputation for tyrannical behavior earned her the nickname Queen of Mean. That's not a label you want, ladies. Queen of Mean. She once called Mr. Spencer to request a butler. She did not want to pay his commission. Instead, she said to him, Think of the prestige you'll get from placing a butler with the Queen of New York. Spencer replied to Mrs. Helmsley, Madam, I have placed butlers with real queens, and they always paid me. He then hung up. The Israelites viewed themselves as God's chosen people. In fact, he had chosen them to be his witnesses to other nations, but that did not give them license to transgress against him. Some apparently figured they had a get-out-of-jail-free card, that God would never punish them. Amos 9.10 all the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. That's presumptive. They're assuming they have a privilege that puts them out of reach of condemnation. But see how God brings them back to ground level. Yes, he had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt under Moses. But their disobedience put them on the same footing as any other people. 9.7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, or Ethiopians, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the, the Philistines from Kaftor, which is Crete, and the Arameans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from keeping God's laws. When you trust in him, your past sins are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to transform your sinful tendencies. But we stay accountable to the Lord for our actions. His grace ought to empower us to live on a higher plane, not receive an automatic exemption. His love motivates us to please him instead of just pleasing ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.9 So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. section check on purposelessness and despair 
God has a better day coming. So, you've hung in there for nine chapters of warnings of imminent judgment on prosperous, profligate Israel. Yet, even though they've been behaving so cruelly towards the poor and needy, even though they built mansions with ivory carvings through swindling common workers and have drunk so much wine they can hardly drag themselves off their comfy couches, Amos still has a message of hope for the repentant. The last five verses in this last chapter hold out definite hope. Uh, Verses 11 and 12. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Here we see God will rebuild after the destruction that's coming. David is referred to. In Jesus, the root of Jesse, we see David's descendant according to human reckoning. When Jesus comes back and brings in his millennium reign, we can expect to see a restoration of Israel. The picture of prosperity and fruitfulness that can happen at that time is practically miraculous. God repeats, I will, I will, about five times in these verses, emphasizing he's bringing about something that's very special. Verses 13 to 15. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. What a startling picture of fertility and fruitfulness. The seasons bumping into each other so that while the farmer's still reaping the previous crop, it's time to get the next one in the ground. Wine dripping and flowing from the mountains and hills. God can heal the land even after its scorched earth discipline under the Assyrians. So, is this all just about Jewish people or do we find ourselves here too? Does this passage point to us at all? Well, the apostles in the New Testament apparently thought so. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was a critical moment when early church leaders were deciding whether Gentiles, non-Jews, could rightly be part of this move of God, as Peter, Barnabas, and Paul had been witnessing non-Jews receiving the Holy Spirit. Do we let them in? Are they part of us or not? At a crucial moment, James, the Lord's brother, reaches way back in his memory of the Hebrew scriptures and sees in Amos' prophecy God's endorsement that Gentiles who were turning to God should be welcomed into the church. James said in Acts 15, 15, The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, 
who does these things that have been known for ages. There, James was quoting Amos, and there you are. God's promises are for you too, as you trust in Jesus, the Messiah, David's descendant. This pandemic has been a long grinding two years. We are very ready to be done with it. But ultimately, our hope is not in timing of pandemics being over and restrictions lifted. Our hope is ultimately in Jesus, the new order he will bring, and the new life his spirit is already awakening and growing in our lives. There will always be trials as you go through life. You need a hope that transcends this fallen order to keep you going. This vision of wine flowing and the plowman overtaking the reaper hints at the wonderful things God is waiting to bring about in our experience and through our trusting him through even the toughest times. Last section, the deceitful art of being a big shot. In closing, Howard Butt, B-U-T-T, was a prominent Christian businessman who wrote an article titled, The Art of Being a Big Shot. Among many other insightful things he said were these words. He said, it is my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I am the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people, and I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It is dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It's not just a matter of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I am conceited, I am lying to myself about what I am. I am pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling Amos to warn the proud northerners of their shortcomings, most of all that they had forgotten who you were. Forgive us our pride our trying to do it all ourselves, our failure to realize life itself is a gift and we depend on so many others. Save us from our self-delusion. Help us have a big view of who you are, to bow our knee before you as the Lord Almighty, God of heaven's armies, and in that awareness to yield our whole life to pleasing you and reaching others with your love and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Ernest. Will you stand as